Hello and welcome to episode 5. Today's episode is about thalassemia and we have Professor John Porter here to talk to us about a background of thalassemia, how it's been treated and how we're looking to maybe cure this disease through gene therapy in the future. Thank you Professor John Porter for joining us to talk a bit about thalassemia and ultimately getting onto Bluebird Bio and what we've been doing in the last sort of 12 months with this clinical trial. But I guess the first question really is, what is thalassemia? It's not something that we commonly see on the wards. Often it's patients coming in for overnight blood transfusions. Can you give us a bit more background about what it is? So thalassemia is an inherited form of anemia. Mm -hmm. So people are born with thalassemia. And depending on the mutations involved, it can be anything from a quite a mild or even not apparent blood condition, all the way to a transfusion-dependent anemia. The mildest forms we call trait, means you've got one gene, and it makes the red cells a little bit small, so we call it microcytosis. Just to put that into context, if someone is pregnant and they have a screen, they have a full blood count, and often it's found that the red cells are small as microcytosis. The commonest cause of that is iron deficiency, iron deficiency anemia, but an important cause is thalassemia carrier status, thalassemia trait. Now, stepping back a little bit, thalassemias are very common in people who have parents or family that originate from outside Northern Europe. The genes seem to have been selected for in Southern Europe, in Asia, in Africa, and so on. And the thing that these areas have in common is malaria. Okay. Is that got similarity with sickle cell then? Yes. The selective pressures are the same. So basically, if you carry a thalassemia gene, you're less likely to die of malaria the first time you get malaria. And therefore, there has been a selective pressure to select out these genes. If you have one gene, the thalassemia trait, which we've just been talking about, then that has no bad consequences for you clinically, and it actually protects you from dying from malaria the first time you get it. So that's all good. If you have two genes, of course, then you could be transfusion-dependent, And historically, before we had modern medicine, people would have died of severe anemia. Mm -hmm. But the balance of those things actually favoured the selection of those genes. Okay. When you see on a a sort of the clarking, if you see a patient who's being treated, what does minor and major mean in that sort of context? So uh, major and minor are slightly archaic terms, but they're, they're fine. Minor means trait, carrier status. Major means two genes, so that's a homozygous state, usually for the beta thalassemia. So, um, again, now to go into a little bit more detail, we can have alpha thalassemia or beta thalassemia. What does that mean? So imagine haemoglobin, adult haemoglobin, contains heme and globin, and the globin bits are made up of equal amounts of alpha globin and beta globin. So a healthy red cell would have equal amounts and they pair together and they form a nice stable molecule which can take oxygen to the tissues. Now, if you have a thalassemia gene, if you have an alpha thalassemia gene, you don't make enough alpha globin. If you have a beta thalassemia gene, you don't make enough beta globin. 
And, and so the, the term major usually is used colloquially to apply to the homozygous state of beta thalassemia. And would it be fair to say that within a service like, you know, within this hospital, uh, the patients that you're, you know, sort of dealing with, yeah, uh, sort of on your books, as it were, are they typically patients carrying a ma uh, thalassemia major? So we follow about 200 patients at this hospital with significant forms of thalassemia. To put that into context, there are only about eight or 900 patients with thalassemia major in the UK. So we see a very large proportion. And ourselves at the Whittington, we work in a network and we would have about 40 or 50% of the patients in the UK wow. between us. Is it right to say that uh, sickle cell disease, I've heard, is, is it the most common genetic yes. disorder in the UK? So how come yeah. thalassemia is relatively uncommon then? I think it reflects migration patterns. So the patients we see with thalassemias came in originally from Cyprus. So in the 1950s, people came from Cyprus when the political system changed. And a lot of families set up in North London, round, round here, mm -hmm. uh, in Camden and Islington. That's why we've always had a thalassemia population round here. Uh, and then with second waves and third waves of migration, we, we had more people from Bangladesh, Pakistan, India, and where thalassemia is common as well. If you take on a global basis, China and Thailand and Malaysia, Southeast Asia, they have a lot of thalassemias and a lot of variants called E-beta thalassemia, basically slight different variants of uh, different types of thalassemia in different parts of the world. Transfusion became possible for this sort of patient group, which I'm not sure what the sort of when when that yeah that would have came. been in the late fifties, early sixties. Okay, so at that point, it started to become a disease you could live with rather than die from. Yes. So historically, up to that time, people would have died in ch early childhood. Maybe if they had slightly milder mutations, would have kept going till early adolescence, but they would have died of the effects of anemia. And the other thing that happened before transfusion became available is that people got very bad bony distortions. So what happens with thalassemia is because the globin is imbalanced, the red cells don't survive properly. So they get destroyed in the blood, so you get a hemolytic anemia, so you get anemia from that, but also the red cells are destroyed in the bone marrow. So we call that ineffective erythropoiesis, ineffective red cell production. So what happens with this particular form of anemia, which you get more than any other type of anemia, is the bone marrow expands. You get these rather disfiguring facial appearances, you get bony fractures. And it was only once people started hypertransfusing people that these lesions went away. And if you just look at pictures of thalassemia from the 1950s, you see children with very, very distorted skeletal frames. Okay. I guess from that kind of point onwards, what have been the sort of significant advances that have, have kind of come about apart from transfusion? Yes. So transfusion came in, people started living longer, but then they started dying and they started dying of diabetes, cirrhosis, but most above all, heart disease. So what happens is that when you transfuse, every unit of blood contains about 200 milligrams of iron. That iron goes to various parts of the body, including the heart, 
poisons the heart, the heart doesn't work properly, you get heart failure and you die. So then the idea of giving drugs to remove that excess iron came in, mm -hmm. and we call those iron chelators. Because with iron, unlike some other compounds, the body's not able to naturally excrete it. Absolutely. Right? Human beings, unlike many other species, can't excrete iron. So if you give a rat iron, mm -hmm. it gets rid of it. Mm -hmm. uh, but humans can't do that. We're adapted to try and extract as much iron from the environment as we can, so that when we get too much iron, we just don't know what to do. And the iron accumulates in the body and is poisonous. So we have to give unculating drugs and the first of these was a drug called Desferal and this became available from the late 1970s I would say it varies we were about the first place in the world to give Desferal um, at this hospital okay. and it's a naturally occurring molecule that microorganisms make to acquire iron themselves and that was distilled by Sibagaygi and it was shown to chelate iron, and early experiments occurred. It's not absorbed, it's a big molecule, can't be absorbed, has to be given by infusion, so it's quite a difficult drug to give. Nevertheless, the early trials were very encouraging, and it was quite clear that people were living longer. And then people thought that we needed iron chelators, which were easier to take, because a lot of people were still dying, because they, they couldn't really manage with the infusions of Desferal. So a drug called Deferoprome, an oral alanculator, started clinical trials in the 1980s, and then the X-Jade, the one we use most now, became available in 2005, having done work on it before then. So we now have three drugs which we can use to treat iron overload. And can I just ask, if we saw a patient with a desferal infusion running subcutaneously or IV, why would they not be on X-Jade, for example? Sometimes it's just that it's the only drug they tolerate, and sometimes it's to do things that the other drugs don't do. We've got more experience with Desferal than any of the other drugs, and we do use it selectively under certain circumstances. So if someone's got heart failure, for example, we give an infusion, and it, it's very effective and relatively safe and doesn't have some of the toxicities of the, of the other ankylators. Has there been anything else significant in that time as well, or was iron chelation the big, the big sort of thing that it, it, needed to happen to make blood transfusions? Yeah, safe? it was a big thing when I started, and I spent a lot of my research career investigating iron chelation and how to monitor it. So one mm -hmm. of the other advances that came in was uh, MRI to quantitate iron in tissues, and it wasn't initially possible. But now we can measure iron in the heart and the liver really quite accurately, and this gives us a much better handle on who's at risk from iron overload. So that's been a big advance that came in in, in, the, in the 90s. And then other advances in thalassemia, bone marrow transplantation, allogeneic bone marrow transplantation, started to be done in Pesaro in Italy in the 1980s, a guy called Lucarelli, and he identified not only a regime which worked, but also ways of predicting outcome. So some people died during uh, transplantation, and he could identify those most at risk of that happening from a number of different risk parameters. And those risk factors are actually still used today to stratify risk and benefit of allogeneic bone marrow transplantation. And very broadly, 
it needs to be done early in life. It needs to be done certainly below before the age of 14, ideally before the age of five, mm-hmm. uh, from a brother or sister who doesn't have thalassemia but is a complete match. So obviously not everyone has that, that option. Yeah. And more recently people are using matched unrelated donors or even haploidentical donors, but that increases the, the risk. And that must be difficult because, I mean, we're used to patients taking on the risk of an allogeneic transplant and maybe 20 or 30% risk of sort of, you know, within the first year, taking on that risk for what could be now a, a sort of a longer term condition is that that it's, must be yeah, difficult it, to, it, to weigh up to the clinicians com- and the family. It's a completely different paradigm. So uh, if you've got someone with leukemia, you can say, well, if we don't give this allogeneic transplant, you've got a 20%, 30% chance of relapsing in the next five years, and then you'll die. You know, it, it's yeah. fairly clear. But with thalassemia, it's not as cut and dried as that because with conventional treatment, we now have people living into their 60s. Mm-hmm. So it's a much more difficult conversation. And when you sit down with a, a family of a young child and you come to a decision to do an allergenetic transplant, and this is also true with sickle cell disease, you're wondering, well, is are you acting in the child's interest or the parent's interest or what what exactly is going on here? Because we know with thalassemia particularly, we can have a good life expectancy and actually quite good quality of life with transfusion and chelation. So making that, that judgment can be difficult. I guess does that lead us on to then a bit about what's happening right now on, in the last 12 months that, you know, in the hospital we've had three patients go through something called Bluebird Bio, or the company's called Bluebird Bio? They're, they're the company, yes. yes and yeah. they've run a clinical trial, and we've been one of the centers. So yes. can you tell us a bit about what that's what that uh, is trying to achieve? Yeah, so so this leads on quite nicely from the allogeneic transplant. So one of the problems with allogeneic transplant is it's not available to everybody. Mm-hmm. If you could do a transplant of your own bone marrow, so you, you have thalassemia, you take... The, the, the clinicians take your own bone marrow, take the stem cells, and then they alter the gene from those stem cells so that we can put a corrected gene back, stem cell back. Mm-hmm. And that's the concept with gene therapy. There are various approaches, but there's been a long-term goal to, to do this, where you take the stem cells, you alter them in some way, and you put the corrected stem cells back. So in terms of the transplant, it's it's a a relatively safe transplant procedure compared with an allogeneic transplant. You don't get graft-versus-host disease. You give less drugs. You only give one drug usually. It's busulfan. Busulfan has its own toxicities. It's not totally benign. But it's it, it, it should have a, a lower risk than allogeneic transplant. Mm. In terms of correcting the gene, this has been the fruit of 20 years at least of work and the current trial that we're doing with the Bluebird Bio is with a lentiviral vector. So it's, a, it's an inactivated vector, which is related to the HIV virus, in fact, but doesn't cause HIV. Yeah. It just uses the apparatus to get into the genome. Okay. And, and then you uh, put in a fully functional beta gene with a promoter and with an insulator on either side so it doesn't integrate in the wrong places and cause... Um, unwanted effects and it's been a step-by-step process so when the first trials were done you got about an 
2 or 3 gram increase in hemoglobin, which is all right in the mildest forms. But if you've got bad transfusion-dependent thalassemia, you need to make about 6 or 7 grams of hemoglobin to get, or even more, to get over the line so the patient's transfusion-independent. Mm -hmm. But it's been step-by-step, step and it looks like uh, that is now there. Fantastic. So essentially some of the benefits of this would be uh, not only you know it's it's not related to siblings it's not got the same mortality risk i guess it's also potentially for we we potentially some older patients as well that you don't have to get to necessarily that sort of under 5 window yes so so an autograph which is effectively what this is uh, being less toxic should be available to an old, older group of patients and the current trial allows patients into their 30s. So if if they've missed out on allogeneic transplant for one reason or another, then this is potentially an option for them. Mm -hmm. But there are other new treatments for thalassemia. You may have come across uh, Lospatacept, for example. We're doing trials on that, which um, boosts the patient's red cell production without the need for gene therapy. Okay. And that buys you about two or three grams of hemoglobin. So some patients, that may be an answer. And so these patients, when they come through and become transfusion independent, they're creating healthy erythrocytes at that point? Yes. Yeah, so you give your transplant, you ablate the bone marrow, you create space for the corrected stem cells to populate that space which has been created. And when they grow back, the globin chain imbalance, the abnormal Red cell precursors, which normally get destroyed in thalassemia major, don't happen, and you get healthy red cell precursors being made, and you get near to normal erythropoiesis, normal red cell production. I would imagine this is sort of very exciting news, obviously, for for clinicians such as yourself, but also people within the sort of thalassemia community. Is is that fair to say? Has there been sort of a lot of discussion and excitement yes. over this yes it, it's it's obviously been something which people have been hoping for for a long time and i would say for the last 20 years i've been saying to my patient just wait five years just wait five years it's now here this is clinical trials we're doing so it's not yet licensed mm-hmm. and it's not clear whether the nhs will pay for it um these days some by no means a given a foregone conclusion. It's very expensive, but at least it's here in principle. Of course, we need longer follow-up. We need, we'll need follow-up for 20 years to know whether it has any long-term risk of cancer, for example. We can't say that for certain. Mm-hmm. Um, but the earliest... Due, due to the busulfan or due to just a, any other yeah, factor? Yeah, good question. I think there, are two, there are two things. Busulfan, of course... Mm-hmm. Can, can have its own effects, but that's probably low risk. Then there's the unknown effects of the actual gene therapy. If you're not putting normal stem cells back, you're putting altered stem cells, which have got genes put in in various places in the genome. And you can't be 100% certain that that doesn't have unwanted effects in 20 years' time or so. Sure. Can you imagine a day, hopefully not too far off, where this is kind of an upfront treatment that can be given at an early point? Yeah, very, very much so. Um, I I went to a talk on gene therapy about 10 years ago, and the the person who was giving the lecture gave a rather nice analogy. 
and he said that people come up to him and say, well, why aren't you doing better? You know, you can only get one or two grams of hemoglobin. It's a bit clunky. It's not really very good. It's not even, you don't know how safe it is, blah, blah, blah. And he, he showed a picture of the Wright brothers' biplane, aeroplane, mm. and he showed a picture of a 747, what it was. He said it took 70 years to get from there to there, and we're going there step by step. And we've now actually got there, but I'm sure it will get better and safer and more efficient. Does it open up the possibility of treating sickle cell as well? I mean, is that something with this similar sort of principle that we could see that end point? So the, the first patient treated by Bluebird Bio with this technique has been published in the New England Journal last year. And trials with sickle cell disease using this approach are on the horizon. Incredible. All right. Thank you very much. Yeah.